My conversation today is with Jim Gennaro. Jim is a fixture of the Asheville music and live performance communities, having co-created and helmed the Surreal Circus, an experimental, some have called psychedelic, live performance group composed of musicians, fire dancers, aerialists, and creatives of all stripes native to Asheville for over 25 years. In 2021, Jim was inspired to resurrect the Surreal Circus from a hiatus and has since broadened its scope to that of an arts festival focused on local Asheville performers, crafters, breweries, and food vendors. Jim has also expressed his creative impulses via a long-standing solo music project, broadly spanning many subgenres of electronic music under the moniker Logos. Logos's last album, Coronas, was self-released in 2022, and creatively inspired by the coronavirus epidemic and the consequent isolation that ensued as a product of worldwide lockdowns. As well as being versed in several types of ceremonial magic, Jim is also curator of a creative communal space called The Oracle, which hosts an array of events catered to the diverse performing arts and spiritual communities based in Asheville. I sat down at The Oracle with Jim to discuss his influences in music and magic, and how he expresses these through his various projects. To learn more about Jim's various projects, check out the links below. I'm Mike Baker, and this is the Arcanum Podcast. I know a little bit about your life, you know, based on the hours in the car that we've spent together. Um, you've had a really interesting story, really interesting journey. But I don't know at what point in your your life that music and magic first met. When did those two things kind of combine for you or or, you know, in terms of performance and stuff like that? Yeah, so that's uh, it's an interesting question. I feel like it was something that sort of uh, happened naturally, but the question of like when did I recognize it consciously, I have to think a little bit about that. Uh, I would say that my earliest experiences with anything mystical, like my first sort of out-of-body experience that I had that sort of started me on this path was... Um, very intimately connected to music. Uh, there was a, a piece of music that was happening at the time that um, it felt like the doorway that was open to that experience was created by the music, and that was uh, when I was 13 years old. Um, when I think it started to um, coalesce as a realization that 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 those things were connected was probably really in my uh, early 20s when uh, the Surreal Circus was first starting to form and there are a couple like kind of standout moments that really um, jump out for me one was this kind of um, spontaneous healing session that we were doing on a friend of mine who had uh, ovarian cancer at the time. Uh, she was a she was a young person, but she had 
cancer and we did this kind of spontaneous healing thing with her with her voices and so uh and it was effective like for you know not trying to say that like i know exactly what the cause and effect was of all this but um, after this uh, session that we had she had a drastic reduction in her tumors that left her doctor sort of baffled um and you said you said you did that with your voices, so that was kind of like mantra, like chant, chant healing. Yeah, and it wasn't mantra in the sense of like saying a set thing. It was more just like using the force of the voice, like you know, using uh, a tone to push energy around. Um, that's a lot of what I was doing in those early days. We were really interested in uh, the voice and how to um, kind of work energy with our voices. Um, so that was like a thing in my sort of earlier twenties. I, I know that it had really crystallized by the time I was at the clear vision school in Australia, which was this uh, meditation school I went to. And I spent a week in a, uh, uh, a desert intensive. So, uh, like, I think it was like 10 days actually of being out in the desert, uh, in silence doing meditation and, um, while I was there, this uh, there were a number of things that kind of came out of that experience, but um, one of them was the the uh, the term the musician was sort of what came to me as like this is identifying what I am, and I had this sense of my purpose being to connect people to uh, spiritual forces through music. And so certainly by that point, by like 25 uh, and, and the whole clairvision experience that had sort of crystallized, but um, there were definitely like things I can sort of point to before that where that realization was unfolding. That's awesome. That idea of connecting people, being, being that link for them, you know, uh, to magical or I guess supernatural forces forces on the other side i think that's a that's a really powerful thing um you know as a musician myself i that's not something i ever dreamed of doing i wasn't really aware that that was possible but there are certainly i can attest to that for sure that there there definitely is some sort of uh spiritual connection or or interaction that's happening when you you listen to a piece of music on um on any level, really, but but particularly when you get very ab- absorbed in it. Well, it's it's like it's right there embedded in the 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 word itself. Like music is, uh, you know, inspiration from the muse, and like, you know, in the original, you know, if you look at the the original muses in uh, Greek in ancient Greece, they weren't music as we think of it. Wasn't one of the muses because music was the art of uh, receiving from the muse and i and i think that that's something that certainly gets very lost in our secular culture but at the same time it's like i think that there's like a common intuition about this that people have because you look at you know the the deepest experiences that people have you know a lot of times there's music is at the center of it or you look at you know some of the uh, musical stars, like think of someone like David Bowie, or you know, even like uh, you know any rock star, really, like any anybody who is like 
holding that position where they have thousands of people focused on them and you know this really like they are kind of like the high priest of the of a uh, undefined uh cult you know or religion but there's there's the sense that they are channeling or bringing something much bigger than themselves through so how do you how do you how would you describe what it is that you do if and and I'm not even just talking about um you know you as as logos as as a specific uh musician or musical artist but like in the broader sense right i mean you you curate this space here at the oracle in Asheville. you 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 have the surreal circus which you've just recently uh resurrected like two years ago and and this year you had a great show as well so there's a lot more going on there for you than just music there's there's a lot of inspiration well, I there's a lot of different projects that I am involved with, and uh, they're all kind of extensions of um, of two things really. Like one is like my own attempts to kind of channel this uh, inspiration flow that I sometimes can tap into, and that uh, you know is really like kind of the most important thing to me in terms of my music or art is like, is what I'm doing, like coming from a place of inspiration. Um, and so, you know, in some ways logos is like the most purely that it's like, there's something very, um, I don't know if I, I don't want to say selfish, but like self-focused in terms of like, that's my project where like, this is my thing that I'm doing and I'm trying my best to like kind of express what wants to come through me. And then I have a number of other projects where it's more, the focus is more on like this community that I'm involved with uh, and trying to create, um, create settings where people can sort of step up and like do that themselves too. And so the two things are like very connected, um, but there's a spectrum, you know, there's like uh, the, the space at the landing, the Oracle, uh, that is, uh, it's really, that's probably the most kind of community focused thing. Like I, I, I do that because I want to create a space for people to, uh, do spiritual practice in a way that, uh, you know, maybe is connected to sound or music. Uh, not necessarily though. There's a lot of things that happen in here and it's really like a community center. Um, Surreal Circus is kind of in between those things too. Like the, a lot of the Surreal Circus vision is coming through me. Uh, and I won't say from me, there are parts that are from me, but there's a lot that I'm just sort of the catalyst for. Um, but at the same time, it's very much a community project. It's something that um, only can exist in the context of many people pulling together. And I like all those things, you know, but uh, on some level it's like what I would like to be creating is uh, something closer to a, a church or uh, a traveling uh, circus or one of these kind of uh, environments where things are really taken outside of the norm, not just because I think that there's really powerful work that you can do uh, in those spaces, but also because I think that's actually where my own art kind of thrives. Like I think that, 
you know, my music doesn't really, it doesn't play all that well in like a, a, like a nightclub or a bar, you know, it's something that really has to be kind of like engaged with in its own environment. And so, you know, at some point I, I don't know when, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. Like, did I create the environment and the music was born through that? Or did I, you know, have this thing that needed to happen? So I built a space for it to happen. It's a little of both, but, um, I do, I do think that uh, a big part of what I'm doing is trying to create uh, sort of the uh, the temporary autonomous zone in the Hawking Bay uh, lingo, um, the space where kind of the ordinary um, rules of how things work can be kind of suspended long enough to have an experience that is uh, that is connected and deep. One thing I want to say, uh, particularly about the Surreal Circus and, and having participated in it myself this year, is that there really is a, uh, there was um, a surprising sense of family to a lot of the, the people there, you know, and, and it was like, I've, I've been hanging around you for a while and, and, and I've been here at, at this space and I've been in Asheville now for a little while and I've not really seen any kind of other performance art or organization at the Surreal Circus, it was like they just kind of came together and it seemed almost like, you know, if you've been away from family for a really long time and as soon as you uh, get together or something like that for a holiday, whether it's for, for better or for worse, you snap back into those old roles, you know, almost automatically. And I got the sense of a lot of that happening. But you, you, you did talk a little bit about inspiration there and how things come through you. And I'm curious... Where do you go for inspiration? Like, how do you source it? The truth is that at this point, it's it's like, how do I say this? I make an intention to do a thing and set like, you know, this show is going to happen in a certain time period. And then what I find is that the inspiration kind of comes from that end state in a sense that it's, it's almost like, um, you know, like, like creating a show is, is like, it's sort of like a magical act in itself. Like, you know, you, you, you set the date and like, we're going to do this thing on this time. And then you start to get these kind of ideas and little, uh, bursts of inspiration. And, uh, it, it builds on itself and there's this kind of momentum that uh, can be kind of overwhelming sometimes. Like uh, this was something that was like, it was very interesting to have like this very long break. So Surreal Circus was ended in 2015. It came back in 2021, uh, 2021. And so I had like this, you know, 16 years of like not doing this thing that I had done for a decade um, in my twenties. And then, uh, you know, with, with surreal circus, there is very much, uh, the idea of an egregore. Like you have this thing that is like the, it's, it's like the sum of all the parts, but it's beyond that. It's like the, the, you know, the egregore of the surreal circus is like its own thing. And that's something that's always been very much there. But what was weird to, experience not weird but it was just like a little bit surprising was how much like 
I was able to tap into it again. As soon as the decision was made, as soon as it was like, we are doing this thing, it was like something just opened up. And then I would get these like flashes of inspiration. And it would, uh, you know, at times it would almost feel like a, a manic episode. Like I'm not, I'm not bipolar, but I've been around enough bipolar people to, you know, see how, you know, that gets. And there's, there's definitely like, um, you know, there's a feeling of like, this stuff is just coming too, too fast. I, I, I don't know if you've ever read the, uh, the Sandman uh, comics, but there's a, and, and they actually showed this episode in the series that came out recently, but there's a, a story of a muse who uh, is, uh, I, I can't remember the exact reason why she's pissed at her, uh, this artist or this writer, but she just floods him with ideas to the point where like he's I think just, she's, I think she's kidnapped by him. It's Calliope, right? Yeah. Yeah. She's You're right. Yeah. Yeah. She's kidnapped. Him. And yes, exactly. She's kidnapped. Uh, and she, uh, you know, she's like, fine, you want ideas, you want inspiration. I'll give you inspiration. And it's like nonstop. And there were moments, uh, both last year and this year where I felt that. And it's, it's, uh, you know, in, in the clairvision school and the training that I did, you know, you, you kind of learn to work with that. And so a lot of that is sort of accessible through these kind of energetic structures above your head. So, um, you can access those in ways that, you know, it's, it's like kind of, if you're trying to like access those states and just like your regular consciousness, it's going to, it's going to be rough. And, uh, but there's a way of sort of accessing it from, these structures that are like kind of above your head that enable you to uh, sort of have like a valve almost, or like be able to like work with it directly. And uh, I know I'm getting into some like deep, weird stuff here. No, this but, is great uh, <laughs> because th- this is, this is exactly what this podcast is meant to do. Like th- exactly what you're talking about. So please continue. Cool. So, <laughs> So yeah, like I'll, I'll notice, like I'll get to this point where I'm just like having these ideas and like, I get kind of manic and like, like my wife could tell you, like <laughs> when I get into this state, it's like, it's a little, it's a little rough. And then I'll be like, okay. Like, and I have to like, kind of like pull upwards, you know, from my, from my physical body a little bit till I kind of deal with it up here, um, above my head. Um, and yeah. And I think that, you know, one of the um, one of the pitfalls or one of the, the perils of, uh, being on an artistic path, whether you're, whether you're like conscious of any kind of like non-physical or supernatural or spiritual dimension to any of it, there's always the, uh, this fear of like, you know, the well will run dry, you know, that like imagination is limited and, I definitely think there are things that can like negatively impact your ability to be creative or to like come up with ideas or be inspired. Um, but I also firmly believe that the, you know, as long as you are in a place to receive it and you're actively doing it, like there's no limit to creative inspiration. Well, there's, there's, there's no, there's no limit to the egregores you can tap into. Some of them can be more harmonious than others, and some of them can ha- kind of have this repulsion uh, when you're working them at the same time. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, once you plug into a source like that, 
it, it is like uh, turning on a faucet or connecting to a well. Yeah, and that um, that reminds me of something that uh, Terrence McKenna used to say about. Uh, he, he was talking in terms of like sort of the ecological crises and. You know, and he was like, like, we have this whole idea, this mentality that like resources are limited, but really all resources that we have are products of our creativity and our imagination. And that is unlimited. So the idea of like thinking that, you know, the the planet is doomed because we can't uh, innovate or think or, or come up with solutions out of, you know, to find our way out of the crisis is like basically just putting an artificial limitation on creativity. Actually, I heard something recently. I'm not like a huge fan of, uh, and it's, it's not, it's not because I don't like him. It's just, I don't, I don't connect with his message particularly. Um, but I'm, I'm not necessarily a huge fan of Gary V. I don't but know who that is. He's like this motivational, uh, speaker on Instagram and, uh, social media kind of became a personality, you know, like a social media influencer personality as well. But uh, I was listening to um, a podcast that he was on recently, and he said something that really, really, I had like a little bit of a breakthrough moment. And and, um, because I, I am very apt to buy into or fall into that ideology, you know, sometimes that fear of, of scarcity and, and doom and gloom. But he said something, and it was so beautifully put, the world is fundamentally abundant. And it, I don't know if it was a combination of where I was at mentally and in my life or, or just the state I was in, um, not immediately rejecting that. But, I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, the world is fundamentally abundant. I, that, that has never, unfortunately, it's never been my viewpoint on things and um, it's starting to make more sense to me now. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's hard for anybody to really have that viewpoint because we're so, you know, like we are limited by the things that we have access to, you know, and on a physical level, you know, we do experience limitations and scarcity, but, um, and some people much more so than others. And I think that always has to be kind of acknowledged, you know, like I'm not super big on the whole, you know, the secret kind of thing of like, you know, ignoring systemic challenges or differences and just being like, well, just, you know, manifest your way out of poverty. If you're poor, you know, like the, the place we are all at is different. The starting point is different for everybody, but whatever situation you're in like there is there's opportunities for like something new to be created for your mind to come up with new ideas or new solutions to problems and um yeah i mean i i agree like there's you know there's vast power just coming from our star you know the sun is like this constant source of energy and like you know, all the, so is your, and your brain is kind of like, your mind is kind of like that too. Like I think of our imagination as like this kind of, uh, furnace that is generating everything that we have, you know, and I mean, we collectively, you know, and like, 
I don't, you know, that's not, that's not going away unless we, you know, unless you let it atrophy, unless you, you, you know, we, we all can, yeah, yeah. Like you can, you can shut off those currents of inspiration pretty easily by, uh, all the things that we do that keep us diminished and right. Fear kind of closes that door. That's the big thing really, you know, fear can, can cut you off from inspiration i think sometimes yeah fear and you know addiction and uh all the various traps that keep us in that scarcity mindset and like one thing to always be aware of is that there's uh, a vast army of marketers out there working to uh keep us believing that we are you know not enough or we don't have enough or there's something that you get this one more thing you'll have what you need you know and like there there are there are forces at play trying to keep us from being really empowered and it's hard to break out of that mindset and in some ways that's really what I'm like I'm trying to do with my more community focused projects is like take things outside of that world like even though like there's a lot of very valid criticisms of like burner culture, Burning Man, and all that, um, I think at its heart, you know, there was something really good that it did. Where, you know, for like one week, you were not dealing with the world of uh, commerce and trade, and just having that kind of break from that, where like creativity was sort of more the currency of the the moment. I think it does something really good for your brain and it inspired a lot of, uh, creativity in people. Uh, and of course, like most cool things at some point, it's gotten really, uh, latched onto by, uh, more sinister forces, but <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you, you had a pretty, um, you had a pretty diverse experience, I think culturally growing up, uh, you traveled a bit. How do you think that, influenced or continues to influence what you do now yeah i I think you're you're probably alluding to like uh i spent some uh time in haiti when i was younger and um you know like kind of 11 to 14 i spent uh, part of the year in haiti because my dad lived there um it definitely shaped a lot of things like if i look back like i feel like that was like the critical kind of uh inflection point for who i became um both in terms of like some of the mystical experiences but also i think it's just a you know it's a really different experience to be in a place where there's just tremendous poverty and i don't think uh like i think it would be really good if like every american went and spent like a year in a place like haiti or uh you know some other like developing part of the world because it definitely changes your you know experience and it changes your perspective on uh the world and um how how does it like how is it still affecting it uh that i'm i'm not sure of you know (laughs) well you, you you did have you had some encounters i think with uh the the folk religious or spiritual practices i think um it's voodoo, right? Is that what I'm... Yeah, I, I mean, I had some, I had some encounters. Uh, really, I, I, I met a voodoo priest when I was thirteen there, and 
what happened is sort of outside of like, you know, a simple description of like cause and effect, right? Because right. it's not like he and I talked a lot about voodoo or, and that got me interested in it. Uh, I was already very interested in the occult, um, largely thanks to my, my, uh, my grandparents were into like spiritualism and my father, my grandfather, uh, who I didn't know very well. He died when I was pretty young, but he was, a he was like a, a faith healer and they used to go to like, uh, Casadega in Florida, which is like this town of, uh, this like spiritualist town and stuff. And they were into that stuff. So I, I'd, I'd gotten some introduction to a lot of that stuff through him. But when I got to Haiti, um, you know, my direct exposure to it was somewhat limited, but it ended up kind of, um, I had sort of an energetic, uh, I don't even know how to like say as well, like assuming that your, your listeners on this program are, uh, you know, not too far down the, uh, skeptic materialist path. <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, <laughs> the, you know, I I basically had an encounter with an entity when I was down there, and that was something that I didn't really understand what was happening at the time. But when I got to the clairvision school in Australia, and we were like, kind of uh, doing a lot of mapping of these things, these memories and experiences, um, that I I really got in touch with something that felt like a uh, past life. Um, relationship that I had had with a being and um and even like before clairvision like very soon after I went to Haiti actually I had this like kind of spontaneous out-of-body experience that felt connected to all that too and uh became the inspiration for this uh this opera that I'm uh, in theory working on or I in theory have been working on uh, bit by bit for like the past 30 years to some degree but it didn't really I don't know like I think because of the the sort of uh, you know the cultural like I just don't have a lot of exposure to people practicing voodoo mm-hmm. here in like western North Carolina it's not a thing you encounter a whole lot a little bit actually more than you would expect but not a whole lot but um and also just having this, you know, as like a, as a white person, uh, with no, you know, person like a family connection to it. It's, it's not something that seems like a, you know, seemed like a viable path. And I kind of like put those experiences down to like, okay, that was some weird shit that happened. And like, uh, I don't know what to do with that, you know? So I kind of moved into like more areas, more related to like what, uh, was accessible and, and to some degree what was like uh, connected to like my ancestral uh, lines and stuff but it's something that has like come up again like we went to a voodoo ceremony in New Orleans uh, my wife and I did uh, when was that? I was, uh, it was in 2020 it was kind of towards the you know later part of the pandemic or whatever um uh, we got to we got to New Orleans right as the all the restrictions were lifting, so September or something like that. And um, and when we went to that ceremony, it it really like something really clicked, and like the the energies, the 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 presence of the the loa, the the beings that they worked with, felt very familiar to me. And, and so it's it's something I, I really uh, have not yet unpacked, but it's it's interesting and. 
whatever that looks like in the future, definitely just even having some kind of experience of a, uh, of a being or of a energy outside of myself as a kid, definitely, you know, launched me onto this path. You talk about being in the mountains of Western North Carolina, but in a sense to me, I feel like this, this place is your playground. And I'm wondering from your own perspective, how does your environment, like being an Ashevillian, if that's the right term for it, how do you... Ashevillian. Right. (laughs) How does that influence or affect your output just just in general? I mean, you've you've got so much behind you and, and so many different experiences and it's all kind of focused right here and and uh you you definitely have established quite a presence in multiple communities yeah it, it has i mean obviously it's had a huge impact it's you know it's a little bit like the fish trying to describe what water is in a way like i've been here so long i came here at 19 and uh, when i first encountered it i um I went. I had a very rough patch when I first got to Asheville, um, and there were a lot of reasons for that. But part of it was, um, frankly, part of it was experiencing seasons for the first time. As somebody who grew up in Florida and didn't really have that kind of rhythm as part of their uh, life, uh, I do feel like the seasons here are very. Uh, well, I want to say that they're distinct. The truth is that it gets very muddy. You can have a summer day in the middle of winter, but uh, yeah. the natural cycles are something that um, I experience here more than I certainly did as a kid growing up in Florida. Um, but beyond that, you know, there were some there were some interesting things that I encountered when my, I spent my first year at a, a a school called Warren Wilson College that is basically uh, tucked away up in the mountains so like you're living more or less in a forest and um, there were things that I encountered in the woods there that I just energetically that felt very uh, foreign and kind of strange and disturbing to me and um, some of that was wrapped up in the way that like things kind of fell apart for me in that, that my first couple of years here in Asheville. And then I just kind of like stayed and built, you know, I, I sometimes I use this metaphor of like a shipwreck. Like I feel like I got kind of shipwrecked here in Asheville and then like, you know, made the best of it and built a little hut out of the pieces of the ship that were left. And uh, whether that's an entirely accurate uh, metaphor or not uh, is up for debate, but it, it what happened, what definitely happened was that I, I kind of made a life and a community and a family here, uh, in the years that followed. And a lot of that had to do with the surreal circus. You know, you said the family thing, like, uh, was something that stuck out to you about the circus. Well, that was kind of the core of it for me was like this community or this family of people. And, um, it's yeah it's it's hard to separate like me from Asheville at this point uh when I've spent periods of time away like uh, honestly it's often really good like I think that you know in some ways I I kind of wish I had left earlier and I, I don't know that I'll always be here but um you know at the same time I always come back there's something that kind of pulls me back and like definitely the mountains feel like this home, not just home, but like that sense of like rest, you know, like, okay, I'm, you know, someplace 
safe again when I get back. Um, it also feels really limiting in certain ways. Uh, you don't have the far vistas that you do out west, or and you don't, or even in Florida, you don't have. Uh, you know, frankly, you don't have that much culturally going on in the ways that you know you would in a in a bigger city anywhere else. Um, and so I've had to kind of like build with what I've got here. And that was, I think that was the thing about Asheville that like kept me here when I was like 20 and, you know, could have, could have done something different was, uh, especially in those days, Asheville was very run down. There was not much happening. And I, I felt like I could build something here, uh, that wouldn't necessarily be doable elsewhere. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that you bring up, um, sort of having an energetic experience, in the mountains at Warren Wilson, because it was, that's definitely one of the first things that stuck out to me about Asheville. When I came here, I think I probably told you about this and I'm not going to go into it now, but, uh, you know, when Nicole and I, my partner, Nicole, when, when we came down here for the first time, it was our first trip. I mean, we, the first thing, the first night we had a, a shared like entity experience, you know, it was, um, and I've never had a shared experience with somebody before. And then we, then I got to go back up to New York where we were living at the time and feel the difference. And there's, there's a palpable energetic difference. And even in the, in the times where, where I'm shuttling myself back and forth for various, you know, uh, bunkings on the head and magical merit badges, um, I get up there and, and somewhere around the New Jersey Turnpike, but particularly, you know, if I'm heading into Long Island or the city, somewhere right around like the bridge, right by the, the you know, the, the Hudson, everything shifts. It's like everything just drops and, and becomes uh, quite heavy. And, and when, I, when I get back into these mountains on my way back, even just hitting, you know, going through Tennessee or something like that, there is, there's a levity. There's, there's definitely a spiritual activity here. And I think a lot of people are drawn here subconsciously by that energy. Um, I think this is definitely a place to heal. I think a lot of people that are here are healing, right? I mean, even that's what brought the Vanderbilts down, Mm -hmm. down here. So that's, it's really interesting to to hear you talk about, um, that being one of the, the, the primary experiences that, stood out for you but you've had such a breadth of experience in other traditions and just just walks of life I'm curious what is magic to you how do you define it I mean definitions can be sterile and difficult so how do you experience it how do you experience magic yeah I like how you say that like because like the definitions are easy to come up with and there's been a lot of you know more knowledgeable people than me thinking about this and saying it. But in terms of what I actually experience about it, I think that at some fundamental level, uh, this is what I believe and experience. Um, Consciousness and the external world are one continuum. And that's something that like, yeah, in theory, we all get the like, you know, even even from like a purely materialistic perspective, like there's nothing that we can ta- have a conversation about that isn't basically being constructed by our minds putting together a stimulus that um, 
you know, like, is there anything other than my perceptions? I mean, yeah, you, at some point you hit these kind of like, you know, bear, uh, <laughs> tree falling in the woods. I started to say bear shitting in the woods, but it's <laughs> mixing my metaphors here. <laughs> Um, you know, at some point you hit this kind of like, like, is there an objective reality? And like, um, and I, and I, I do, and I think that where, you know, where it falls for me is like, um, yes, there is an objective reality that includes the contents of my consciousness. Like, I don't think that everything is an illusion being projected by my consciousness. I think that my ability to perceive reality uh, maybe very, I mean, definitely is very limited, but, um, I think that there's not some hard line between self and outside reality. So that's kind of like a starting point, right? So then magic it, to me becomes about how you affect the world through your consciousness. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to like buy into the, uh, you know, artist, the, uh, the, you know, I think it was Starhawk, I believe described it as the, uh, the act of, uh, changing consciousness at will. And I think that's, that's kind of an interesting, it's like kind of using a how to define a what, but, um, when you change your consciousness, the experiences that you have of the outer world changes also. Um, and I think there are untapped, um, vast untapped potentials to that, uh, untapped by me, at least <laughs> untapped by most people, I think. Um, and yeah, so to me, magic is, is that now, what are you, what are you doing when you do a ritual and you set an intention and you're. You know, you're kind of using these structures. Like to me, it's all about like externalizing the inner world or the inner, you know, like projecting your mind into these uh, kind of forms that you create, whether that's like physically with, uh, you know, tools and, you know, funny costumes and wands and sticks and stuff or, uh, you know, or whether it's something that you're just purely doing in your mind, I think the, the, you know, the props help. First of all, let me just say like theater to me is like a form of magic. And, you know, that was the original sort of, you know, purpose of it. Um, you know, you can do a play with just people reading lines or like, you know, there are, you know, readings where people do those things. But the more that you kind of bring these external elements, you know, you have sets and maybe you have uh, props and costumes and stuff, the more that it is easier to kind of bring someone else into that experience or to bring yourself into it. You know, when you put on a, uh, a uniform of some organization, you know, you, you enter that mindset and it's not that the uniform is necessary, but it's helpful. So I, I think that, um, yeah, it I think could, it could help. I find that things like that help you to connect to the egregore by using, you know, certain things that are associated with it. And it's really interesting what you're talking about with theater as magic, because a lot of actors will say at a certain point, kind of similar to what we as musicians experience. I mean, the best, the best actors kind of lose themselves they lose themselves. And, and to me, that's a kind of invocation 
I've now invoked something else and it's moving through me. And I think you can see that in a performance and you can hear that and feel that in a performance. And I can definitely say that the most miraculous kinds of experiences I have had have been when I was playing music and lost myself. So that's that's a really interesting thing, particularly given what it is that, that you do, which is an intersection of all three of these things, theater, music, magic. I really love also how, especially uh, in the last two Surreal Circus performances, there were public rituals. I mean, that was awesome. Yeah, there's always, there's always a... Uh public ritual there's always a ritual element with surreal circus sometimes that's more explicit than others this year we i i had the inspiration uh this is honestly the thing that made the whole thing kind of coalesce for me of a um well i initially i'd had the idea uh like the first seed vision and this is this is often how it works for me is like you know I say, okay, I'm going to do the Surreal Circus show. And then I wait and, you know, somewhere like in a dream or in like a, this was actually in like a half awake sleep. I got these two kind of seed images and then those became the core of everything that unfolded. But one of them was the, uh, the James Webb telescope as a projection surface. And then the other was the idea of turning the circus on its side. And the first one kind of lent itself to this very tangible thing that I was able to, to uh, build this kind of cool mapped projection surface. But the, other, the one that was really like sticking with me was like, how do you turn a circus on its side? And one night I got hit with like the sort of this like revelatory experience that was like uh, made me realize like, you know, you, when you have a three ring circus, you have essentially three circles that are like on a horizontal plane and so if you turn that on its side one way to conceive that would be three concentric rings and so the the when i saw that i got that the whole thing so there's like the surreal circus festival which is the event and it's you know takes up a park and it has certain uh you know uh parameters to it uh and it has it's all mapped out in a physical space and that's the first ring and then there is the the show, which is like a moment or a period of time in within that festival where the Surreal Circus comes out and performs and there's a kind of a storyline to it. And then within that, there was a, the third circle was the ritual. And, you know, uh, for those who weren't there, uh, basically the park has this kind of circular platform in the middle of it. And it's a, uh, has like a water feature during the day that kids go and splash around in jets of water, but at night uh, they turn it off. And so we had this like witch ritual that was uh, part of the show. Like it was, it was something that was happening within the context of the story being told, but like that was actually like the real thing. And I think that that's where, you know, like there's always some degree of like, uh, the, the, the tension between belief and like suspension of belief or like belief and doubt, I think is like a huge part of all three of these things. You know, you watch a, you watch a movie even, and you like, you know, you know, in your mind that these are actors and special effects and none of this is real, but like, you know, at the same time, you're the part of us that operates through stories wants to, you know, believe the story. And the more you can believe the story, the more, compelling the experience can be and uh so with 
you know, a show like The Surreal Circus that we did just now is like, you know, there's this sort of uh, tension of like, is, you know, is the ritual that's happening part of the story or is it the real thing? And like, that's, that's where I think it's, it's, you know, that's where I think like magic as theater usually succeeds is when you have kind of the outer shell that's like, this is the story that we're telling. And then inside of it, you have the, like the, the kernel of like truth or the kernel of like reality. And, and sometimes it's a journey through that. Typically in, in, you know, in ancient Greece, when they would have the, the public ritual that eventually became what we know as theater, theatrical productions, a lot of times there were reproductions of, of myths and that's exactly what myths are. They're like this kind of fairy tale, this outer shell that contains that kernel of esoteric truth inside of it. Yeah, I always think like the the best place to hide something is right in the center of everyone's face, <laughs> too. Yeah. Not that I was, you know, that we were trying to hide it, but uh, there's, you know, there's something a little bit subversive about having a ritual in the middle of the downtown on the most public spot possible, but. Yeah. So what's what is next on your docket? What have you what have you got going on? Um yeah, well, let's see. In the very immediate term, I am uh throwing the my my annual uh ridiculously over the top Christmas party, uh, aka Dreamtide, the uh winter solstice uh event that we do here at the landing and uh i'm kind of excited about it because we're doing like a tarot theme so the whole thing is going to be uh a series of um it's gonna be a series of vignettes throughout the night that uh sort of unveil the different uh tarot archetypes and we're going to be doing some cool uh stuff with that with the projection screen uh people will be able to like come do a tarot reading where they they press a button and just like the the random images appeared on the circus show they'll have like this giant projection surface that shows the their card and and anyway that's that's like just the the sort of near-term thing uh that's coming up for winter solstice um yeah then i'm sort of at this kind of regrouping point where uh i I'm really ready to work on the opera. Like that's, that's honestly the thing, uh, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier, but basically I had this vision when I was 13 and then it, uh, how I have understood and processed that has changed a lot over the, you know, 35 years or whatever it's been since then. Um, but where I kind of landed was there's this kind of uh, myth, this this uh, story that I want to tell as an opera, uh, as an electronic opera. So um, using, you know, electronic dance music as kind of the, uh, the format of it. Um, and it's about Dionysus and Apollo and those that sort of polarity, which is, of course, like a, you know, <clears throat> that's a thread throughout western culture you know with like uh nietzsche wrote a book about this and uh it's it's the it's the two it's the two kind of uh poles of um well among other things it's the two poles of uh music in ancient greek uh culture you had like the dionysian uh music which was like you know the the music of the dance and ecstasy and wine and uh yeah 
all that, you know, and, and it has its modern equivalents in like, you know, EDM and, uh, you know, rock and roll for that matter and all kinds of, you know, modern music. But then you have the Apollonian stream, which is the sort of solar uh, narrative uh, storytelling ver- uh, version of music. And that's, you know, that's where you get uh, opera and uh songwriting and uh all those kind of things and you know and there's been this kind of uh continuous sort of uh, dance between those two poles throughout the history of uh western music and um you know and it's 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 not none of this is like radically you know insightful new uh, material or anything but that's sort of the the context and then uh putting that uh, story into like a modern setting where basically the like an excess of one like things swinging too far in the Apollonian di- di- direction is like leading to this kind of over uh, <clears throat> solar solarification I don't know if that's even a word but this uh, the idea is that you know we've become so embedded in like the rational and the you know and, and and it's complicated because I think like in some ways our times are more irrational than they've ever been, but the, the power structures of the world have, you know, the, the mechanistic kind of uh, materialist, rationalist uh, worldview has brought us to, you know, a point of like near catastrophe, uh, environmentally speaking and such. And, and so the idea and the way this is sort of told in the story is that then, uh, you know, that Dionysus is sort of called to um, step into the limelight in a sense and sort of try to counteract what has happened as Apollo has gone like too far down one uh, extreme. Anyway, uh, without getting into all the details of it, uh, there's an there's an opera that's been brewing in my head and some uh, many a uh, many a notebook and some some music has been written, but uh, it was always kind of my intention to start it uh, when I did, but then kind of projects keep coming up, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> like then COVID happened and I had to write a whole album about the COVID experience and. So I, I've pretty much cleared the docket, and what I'm working on next is this, uh, yeah, electronic opera about Dionysus and Apollo in a modern setting. Do you think that that's a Logos project or a Surreal Circus slash um, performance family project? Is it both? Well, it's some of both. It is a Logos project, yes. Fundamentally, it is. I'm, it's something that I'm writing in that context. Uh, the real plan, though, the long game here. I hate to give away my long game, but <laughs> no pressure. The long game is to have a traveling uh, circus festival. That's uh, really it's it's part. Uh, Part traveling carnival and part uh, Dionysian festival. So the idea is that um, we would have this uh, mobile event that could set up, uh, you know, ideally in a circus tent somewhere and uh, go to a town. And then there would be like uh, a weekend long festival. And 
it's got elements of the uh, the tent revival to it and it's got elements of like uh yeah like the 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 festival of dionysus where you would have uh different theatrical productions that were performed um so there would be ritual and there would be uh you know of course there'd be a big dance party because a lot of my influences coming out of like uh you know, EDM and rave culture and stuff and trance, psytrance especially. So yeah, like it's proper setting would be, you know, one of the pieces that's performed in a two or three day uh, festival somewhere. Um, Now, will we get to that point and when I, you know, I don't know. That's something I've been kind of brewing up for a long time and um, but that's, that's kind of my, that's my, uh, that's the 10 year plan, <laughs> maybe five year plan. We'll see. <laughs> All right. So final question, three books and or artists in any medium that you'd recommend anyone who's listening to this, uh, should check out. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this today. Uh, you, I, uh, I had gotten a little bit of a spoiler alert that this question was going to come up, and my immediate thought was, oh, shit, what's the last book I've read? It's been – the internet kind of broke me for books. Uh, so some of this – so honestly, some of my influences are, like, much – are kind of older when I think about the things that shaped me. Um, one that I will definitely uh, throw out and vouch for is, uh, is a, a very short book by uh, Alex Gray called The Mission of Art. Um, yeah, Alex Gray, the, the painter that does all the kind of, uh, psychedelic anatomy, very anatomy focused, uh, paintings that, uh, at least, uh, when I was going to college were a common feature among, uh, the, the dorm rooms of, uh, your, all your stoner friends had the posters on the walls or your, your friends who were super into tool. Yeah. Or tool. Yeah. Tool's the main, yes. The guy who does all the artwork for tool. Uh, and, uh, but he wrote this little tract called The Mission of Art that I think is one of the best things I've read about uh, kind of the artist as a spiritual um, seeker or, you know, the, part of it's about the responsibility of the artist to not just do art for themselves, you know, that it, but to like serve something higher and to, you know, and that includes doing the unpleasant business of actually putting yourself out there and seeing your projects to completion and stuff like that. So I love that book a lot. Another one, you can tell I'm like not that uh, deep of an intellectual because all, all the books I'm recommending are more like little tracks than full uh, well, the, the books. In, but The interesting thing is like, to be honest with you, so many of the, the things that like totally changed my life we're like 50 pages 100 pages because you don't you don't need to say a lot uh yeah for sure um so there's a set of essays by Hakim Bey that were very influential to me uh uh Hakim Bey just uh passed this past year um fairly recently uh but he was a uh he was an anarchist uh philosopher who um He's, he's a really interesting one to me, you know, uh, I'm, I'm definitely not enough of a, of a, uh, an intellectual to be an anarchist really. Like that's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of reading and thinking deep things that, uh, yeah, I don't have the patience for, but, 
But Hawking Bay was somebody uh, who I think had this very uh, interesting approach to it, where instead of you know trying to tear down the structures of capitalism or whatever, you know, it was more like he his his idea was the uh, the idea of the TAS, the temporary autonomous zone, and that's the name of the uh, the the book. And uh, there's there's Actually, my first introduction to it was a an album by uh, him and Bill Laswell, there, where he sets uh, readings of he's like Hawking Bay's reading the essays, and he's uh, and there's like music and sound effects going. Um, I love Bill Laswell, by the way. Anything he does is great. <laughs> but um, but anyway, so the the idea of the Taz is that uh, you create these little pockets of um, freedom within the structure so like the idea is like you're never gonna like tear down oppression like or you know like the like the state is always going to be there you know uh or at least it's gonna it's it's not you're not gonna tear it down by like directly fighting it you know but and again this kind of gets back to this idea of like your mind is you know connected to everything and and this is where the like the real fight is is like within yourself um you know so you can create these environments that he called temporary autonomous zones where for a little while you suspend all of the rules of society or you suspend the at least the uh the expectations of like behaving and thinking in a certain way and then you kind of create like a little like a little hole in the in the reality it's like like kind of tearing little holes in the the consensus reality and you know that could be like something like burning man but it could also be like a potluck with your friends or it could be you know a ritual it could you know like on some level that's like its own temporary autonomous zone with different yeah. structures and and that this is how you start to like free your mind. Um, and there's other things in that same book, uh, like his essay on poetic terrorism was one of the things that really inspired the, uh, the surreal circus. Actually, uh, the idea of like using art to create a an experience of like emotional shock that could be you know comparable to the level of emotion that people have in an act of terror, but you know instead of being terror it's like a sense of wonderment or joy or like just confusion <laughs> you know uh that's uh yeah this was uh this was a pre-9-11 book so probably a little easier to make light of terrorism <laughs> than it would have a few years later um well, at least doing something useful with it <laughs> yeah and then um the third, you know, the third thing, uh, I'm going to take an easy out here because there's there are a couple other books that I, you know, that I was really influenced by. Uh, certainly the my teacher, Samuel Sagan, had uh, a series of books uh, called Atlantean Secrets that were really inspirational to me, too. But um, but you gave me the out of uh, music or, you know, book or some other thing. And that's right. And I, I want to, like, give a shout out to. Uh, this band Heilung, who uh, I've been really into lately, uh, because I think they're one of the, the groups that does the thing that I'm getting at the best. And then they're coming from like a uh, sort of uh, 
Norse and German, like uh, Europe, European, European folklore kind of uh, place. So they're a band that uh, is very much. They're kind of adjacent to like kind of the 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 Norse metal scene, but what they the music is not that. The music is like. Uh, all created through either drums or vocals or percussive instruments. They have like uh, instruments made out of bones, even human bones wow. and rattles. And and they're they're doing uh, they do use samples, but the, one of their parameters that they work within is that every sound that they use has to be something that could have been recorded or could have been heard in like pre-Christian Europe. So uh, nothing modern in it, you know, That's but. Awesome. They do use samplers to kind of bring those in, but uh, and it's like chanting, and they're using language that uh, is it's all taken from like sort of like medieval Germanic and Norse poetry. In some cases, they're singing in languages where they don't we don't know what they're singing because they're it's like or what the words are because we don't have translations for those languages. Mm-hmm. Um, and they do this all within like a ritual context. So their shows are, are rituals. They, they have like opening circles and they do a lot of theatrical things. So, you know, they have like uh, some of what they do is like kind of uh, medieval war poetry where they have soldiers that are, you know, dressed in like the full like regalia of like, uh, you know, a medieval soldier with like shields and spears and they're like rhythmically stomping and like banging their spears. And the whole thing is like, it, it, it is that intersection of like theater and ritual and music. Uh, and it's, it's, it's wild. Um, but Heilung, H-E-I-L-U-N-G, uh, it means healing in German and highly recommend checking them out. Awesome. Wow. Jim Gennaro, thank you so much, man. I mean, you're a fascinating dude. I love you, uh, and thank you for talking with me. Yeah, you're welcome, man. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's great. Enjoyed it. Yeah.